Hey, how yous doing? This is Kirk, and it's been a while since I posted an episode of Delarious. Um, have just not been in the most creative of moods over the last few months. I don't know if it's winter or seasonal affective disorder or COVID or a combination of all of the above, but um, I've been uh, much more in the mode of uh, listening and consuming rather than creating, but really wanted to share this conversation with you all. This is somewhat of a perfect conversation to share uh, as someone who has been listening quite a bit over the last few months. I'm talking here today with Ani La, who is a Tibetan nun. Uh, she actually grew up as Lisa Blake in Western Massachusetts, played basketball at Bates College with my wife, and uh, then underwent the path to becoming a Buddhist monk. Underwent? That doesn't seem like the right verb. <laughs> but in any case, she shares her story here today, and uh, I just love her stream of consciousness uh, um, way of, of of talking and providing wisdom. Uh, she's looking to actually build and design a a Buddhist center here in Maine, and and so she shares her thoughts about that. But then she also talks about her journey um, from her days as a as a basketball player at Bates College all the way up to now living in India uh, as, as a monastic. And so pretty cool story. Some of her messages are really just to be open to your own inner questions and curiosities following that path, uh, and then seizing the day, living life as it is right now, finding those joys every day and living with gratitude. So really, really cool chat with Ani La. Ani means, uh, auntie, in Tibetan, which is cool. I've, I've many an auntie, uh, that I love and respect. And, uh, so I wanted to share this conversation with you here today. Here is the venerable Ani La. Okay. Good morning to you. Good morning. <laughs> Ani. Kirk. I, brother. I'm a little late. My computer died overnight. And of course I like over slept through my alarm that's okay i understand i've i've had those moments no problem oh my goodness how are you did you get your cup of coffee do we need to wait five minutes while you get your cup of coffee and look at the look at the mug ani here oh i love it oh my god that is you in another life (laughs) i love i love bob ross he's amazing Too bad you can't get him on your show. I know. If you ever yeah. need a pick if you ever need a pick me up, you just click on the YouTube and there's no such thing as a as a bad painting. It's just a happy little accident. That's right. I love it. You know, actually I could probably do a uh I could probably do a show with me and then my impression of Bob Ross. You could. You need a little I- more fro going, but you're pretty close. <laughs> I know. I had the haircut. Yeah. My guess wait, so what, first of all, do I still call you Ani La, or do I call you by your formal name? Well, whatever you like. There's, it's kind of confusing. I like Ani La. Ani La means kind of like venerable nun. Uh-huh. But the thing is, in, in Tibetan culture, Ani also means aunt. And there's a kind of a oh. PC movement, which I'm not... These days, I was when I was younger, I was all into the PC language and all this. But 
Mostly, I just think it has to do when people have a respectful attitude. Within the culture now, they say, no, 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 we need a whole new word for none because ani means auntie, and we don't want to be, you know, compared to someone's auntie. We want some respect because traditionally in the culture of Tibetan Buddhism, nuns haven't had that. So there's a kind of shift now away from using anila to sunma. Sunma means lady of honor, of virtue. Hmm. kind of a, a woman of virtue, but it's used for a nun. Um, my name, my ordination name, I like a lot, Dassel. Dassel. And that la at the end is also very nice. That's just like a respectful, instead of just using like a name like, oh, Dassel, it's, it's kind of showing this respect that you would show to someone in the robes. So I like Dassel la. People have been saying Dassel la. We're not supposed to call ourselves that because it could be uh -huh. a little bit ego, egotistical, but... Um, I, I think Dasella is good. That's okay. Dasella, okay. Auntie, I mean, I, I feel like say auntie is respectful too. I respect my aunties. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing, the thing is, in our culture, it's different. You know, here it's like the nuns, the monks had so much more status and so much more respect, and then and they had monasteries to live in. And if people see them, they're offered everything. They're offered money. They're offered robes. They're offered foods. And the nuns were just, they were in the sent home. It was like the domestic servants working in the gardens and the fields, worse than servants because they weren't even paid. And it didn't really come into people's minds that the nuns and monks were equally upholding the Dharma. So there was a little bit of that, you know, sexism at play. And it still is, a, India, you know, India is still trying to catch up from that. So, yeah. Dasel is a beautiful word from two Tibetan words. Dawa means moon. And selpo means clear. So it really means like clear moon or clear yeah. light mind, like this very pure mind. So that's also very lovely. That is. And clear moon. There's plenty of clear moons here in Maine there, dear. I know, uh, brother. Yeah. I'm missing. I'm missing. But we get some good ones also. Wait, now, so, so okay, you're in India. Are you in Dharmasala or where are you? Nearby. I'm a little bit, about an hour and a half away from there in the same area of... Um, you know, Himachal Pradesh, which is beautiful mountain region. It's right at the foothills of the Himalaya. So we can look out and still see the snow peaks. And But we're in a big valley. So Dharamsala is up in the mountain. So it's quite cold up there in the winter and then very wet during the monsoon. And we're in this beautiful valley. Like we're already in springtime now. We don't have any heaters jealous. in our, in our uh, I know my sister said that too. I was showing her like the flowers <laughs> that we've gotten. Oh, we don't have any really any uh, heaters in our rooms we just the older people myself included have little space heaters but the nuns have nothing so some days it's like 42 degrees outside and 41 or 40 inside because the, the concrete building holds the cold and i don't know how they they push through that but they do so they had about three weeks worth of that kind of weather but now it's now it's kind of in the 60s, low 70s in the day and kind of high 50s overnight. So it's, it's, it's good, you know, it's Oh my spring. gosh. Wait, what's the elevation? And so you're in a valley, so. We're kind of in a valley, but still we're in the Himalayas. So our elevation here, I think is something like, I don't know, maybe three or 4,000. Uh, oh, so not bad. Not, not much, bad. but when you go up to the McLeod, up to Dharamsala, you're more at like 10. Okay, you know, so, so it, I mispronounced it. I said Dharmasala, it's Dharamsala. Dharamsal. How do you say it? Dharamsal. Some people say Dharamsala. You know, anyway, I get the sense of what you're talking about. It's close enough. Dharamsala. I try. 
it's yes you do that's all we can do we try we we know you have we say three things intention motivation and dedication so you have the right intention and you have the right motivation you're trying to show respect and you know that's that's the right dedication so that's all you need well i'll take it state of mind yes I'll, i'll take now so okay so tell me about your the center the buddhist center in maine that you're considering Oh, uh, yes. Starting. Yes, that is our dream. So Tasha Getzeling, our little community has been around in Maine since about 2000, about 2000. And it wasn't mm-hmm. called that then. It was just um, my teacher, Ken Rinpoche, who Adrian met. Yeah. Um, she, we used to meet in my friend's artist studio in Freeport. And then we had so many people coming some other family came up from from uh, Arlington, Massachusetts, and, and leased this beautiful farmhouse that had a big yoga studio on the back out in Powell Mill. So we shifted, and that's when we became Tashi Getzling. We kind of, our teacher gave our community a little name, mm-hmm. and we started running it as a group of eight, uh, you know, pra- lay, lay women practitioners, and, and my friend Mayor's husband, Troy, who's awesome. But we were mostly a group of ladies, and so they had the space, and that's where we were there for a few years, and then they moved away, and so we someone sponsored a studio in Freeport, so we had a nice big space in Freeport. And when Ken Rinpoche used to come, sometimes we'd have 30 to 40 people, so we needed a bigger space. And that worked out well for a few years. Someone's, but that monthly rent was quite high. We were right on Route 1 in Freeport, so it was a great location. But we were renting it, and it became untenable. So then my friends in Gray, where we're located now, said, look, we've, you know, we finished building this new salt box. And Cole, my friend who was building the house, built in this beautiful big room mm. that can comfortably seat like 20 people. So we shifted, and then we didn't have to pay rent. So we shifted the center there. Now, in the meantime, coming back, I mean, that's kind of our capacity. It's yeah. like 20, 25 at most, because it's, it's not that big. But over the last few years, we've done some retreats and we've thought like what Maine would really benefit from would be to have like a Buddhist center that could be used for more ongoing functions that could hold comfortably like 80 people and that could incorporate some Buddhist ideals like environmental harmony and be off the grid, be heated with solar uh, and, and warmed with solar power. Excess solar could go back into the grid to support clean energy we could have a beautiful organic um, flower gardens, maybe organic greenhouse, grow, go, grow some fresh food to give to the sh- food shelters, um, have a healing flower garden where people who were going to visit sick ones or if people's loved ones had passed away, they could come and actually could have part of the garden where they could cut live flowers and spend time and just ground. So this kind of a beautiful functional Buddhist center that would really be an asset to the community. This is my vision because His Holiness the Dalai Lama is really encouraging us to make Buddhism practical. And, Hmm. you know, basically that means using the secular approach, not so much the religious approach. There can be definitely aspects from the, the aspect of having a monastic like myself who's completely ordained committed to the vows, holding pure ethics, um, and the morality of all that celibacy, no drinking, no drugging, nothing. That, that's, that's our full commitment. No marriage. So my whole practice is in service of the Buddha Dharma. But having it be more of a community-based center where, you know, people who are really needing support these days to come and sit in meditation together, 
um, to listen to some practical advice about, well, what did the Buddha say about dealing with, you know, anger and frustration or about sadness and depression? And how do Buddhist monks and nuns live without, you know, looking for these kind of personal relationships or using sexuality? Or how do Buddhist monastics live without taking any alcohol or taking any drugs? Um, there are a lot of positive aspects of our lifestyle that, that others can do. It's not, you know, we're just human beings. We're nothing special. Maybe just the haircut. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, there are practical aspects of Buddhism that have much more to do with secular values like non-harming in, in uh, the Indian language, ahimsa, what Gandhi founded his whole movement on was non-harming, non-violence. That has to do with your body, with your speech, with your mind, with compassion, with karuna. How do you meet the challenges when people are being aggressive and when the world feels so uh, adverse? How do you come into that with compassion and, and keep your own view very clean, clear, and pure? The vision is to have a, this Tashi Getzeling Buddha Center be an eco-dharma center. So we uphold the concepts of non-harming, pure ethics, pure compassion, loving kindness in a very living way that would, would actually be a resource for the, for the community at large. And also, but our vision is more to try to look for donations, like look for some donation of land, five to eight acres at the most, not more than that. It could even be a little bit less. Um, and to look for don donated resources, to look for donated, you know, whether that's money, monetary gifts or materials, green building, uh, partnering with green builders who would, you know, maybe help us um, by reducing the charge, whatever we can do. I haven't approached the um, shelter project up in Woolwich, but, you know, they, they have some kind of projects and thoughts of you know, going to Casco Bay where they have hands-on teaching kids how to do green building, saying, look, maybe you want to come here. We've got this project. If you give the resources, this could be a project for your students to learn. I mean, we, we don't want it to be, you know, we want it done really nicely and right, but that we'll trust that their teacher is going to oversee it and that this is a way that they could have an opportunity to actually work on a project. So to really keep it grounded in the community that way. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot. Well, first of all, Ani, I love your intention and motivation. And in, dedication. Uh, and dedication in the project. I feel like uh, the programming and sort of the gifts it would give back to, to folks in the community and, and the education that it would provide would be really beneficial. You know, it is an opportunity for people who want to support something that's not just an investment in say like green energy. We also kicked around the idea of trying to invest in like a small solar farm, things that people could see that it would be very practical and that they might want to come in and just do say like, look, yes, we, you're going to do that part, but we're going to support your bigger vision. But yes, we signed up for like the main nonprofit association and the grant station. And so um, it's, we are starting to research like where, what other kinds of startup money can we can we pull together in terms of grants or, or foundation gifts I, my feeling now is like during this period of covid it's our chance to kind of identify some some sources and then get some good pitch together and then really make that pitch and get the word out there like this is what we're trying to do um, a while some years back i did an interview with main magazine like to follow up with them and say look can you help help yeah. me broadcast this idea and get it out there and um that would be great i mean 
I, I, you just gave a great pitch, Ani. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> I'm glad you're recording it, brother, because you absolutely. You yeah, we're gonna put it out on the airwaves. You gotta help me get the word out. There. Yeah. That's what I need. We'll put it out. We'll put it out yeah. in, on the on the podcast airwaves. Yeah, I th- I'm a believer that when you really have the vision, and and all my friends have often said, like you're great at manifesting. And mm. I, I guess if I think of it that way, I have a friend who's an artist who had a web. I think she still has a website, and I love the title of it. It's called Prayers Made Visible. And I think when you, if you think of prayer as like this, really amazing altruistic intention you know that's what prayer is this amazing altruistic wish and belief that we're not doing anything solely by the power just singularly of ourselves, but that we're working in harmony and in concert with much greater forces then you know these things can happen and i can even say from when i've first came to maine in 1984 to see all the changes that the state has already gone through and yes there are still big challenges but believe me from now looking back to the 80s it's so in so much of a better place than it was and i think it can continue to to go that way and even maine's um the the motto of the state of maine is dear ago which means i lead you know and there's an old expression saying says as maine goes so goes the country Hmm. and if we can take that that spirit of you know New England kind of can-do resolve. If you can get through a main winter, you can do anything. Actually, Einstein said, in the midst of difficulty lies great opportunity. And in my own life, that's been so true. Like when the hardest knocks have come, it's been like, okay, well, now what can we make out of this? Mm -hmm. I'm happy to have your help and very appreciative to have your help. So thank you. You bet. You bet. Um, Cool. Well, I also wanted to uh i wanted to hear more of your of your story ani about you know first of all i didn't know that you were you were not a, you're from away as they say here in maine uh yep. you were you said you came to maine in the 84 but then uh i wanted to kind of hear a little bit more about your journey to to becoming a buddhist nun you know from your early days uh, as a college basketball player with with my wife, Adrian. You can get a good backstory from Adrian about that for sure. But yes, yes I'll give you the truth. She said, she said no. Yeah. Uh, Lisa was a, was a was kind of a partier back in the day. Oh yes, oh yes. Which <laughs> so, makes which makes me a very good Buddhist teacher because I there are no flies on me. I just said that to my sister this morning. I said I can never take the holier than thou position because there are too many people in my life who I'm still very closely connected with that would you know always have to keep me humble right away. So that that's very true. As a matter of fact, probably I was one of the earliest people. Adrian was a freshman when I was a senior mm-hmm. at Bates. I was her captain. And, and as a freshman, she was, I was probably one of the first people that she, she had a little underage drinking party with, I have to admit. But, you know, that was the 80s. That's what was going on. So I'm not going to try yeah. to pretend it wasn't. You showed up to um, campus and you gave her uh, like a beer bong or something? Oh, I don't think it was that. No, our first party that we had... There are a bunch of freshmen, and I said, look, I don't want anyone to overdo it. But anyway, we have, you know, what, what happens at the Bates women's basketball party stays at the Bates women's basketball parties. So then you, so then you go through your college experience, and then, uh, you, you know, basically you're living this sort of t- traditional American life for many years. And then what's, at what point are you, are you, does it kind of cross your mind uh, to, to say, uh, maybe, the, maybe I should consider a different path? 
Well, my time at Bates actually, I always, I, I had been meditating since I was about 10 years old. Oh, really? So I, yeah, I had done something when my first time, I mean, when I was very young, when I was six, I used to go out in the backyard where I grew up in South Hadley into these little woods that we had. And I built these little huts that were my forts. I called them my forts. And I would just be out there. I don't remember doing anything. I wasn't particularly reading books. I was sitting, just sitting in the nature, sitting in this little hut, this little fort that I built. I like to build things. And then I would just be very happy out there. And then when we moved, when I was about 10 or 11, we moved to Holyoke. I do remember specifically in my new room sitting one day, just sitting and listening deeply and thinking, what is going on here? You know, like life has changed very quickly, but who is listening right now? Like really paying attention to consciousness. Mm -hmm. And really, I wasn't asleep, I wasn't in a dream, but I really thought like, who's making rules about life? Like uh, meditation, contemplation. I wouldn't say I was doing like some formal shamatha, deep Tibetan practice. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. How old were you when you were doing this? Yeah, I was was about 11, I guess, or 12 when this happened, when I moved to Holyoke. That's crazy. I think when I was 11 or 12, I running around the streets. I was just kind of like very curious about how my reality was unfolding, I guess. And so when I was sitting in my room, I thought, well, what do you think you want to do with your life? You know, like what's interesting to you? And I thought, I really want to find teachers who made a difference in the world, and I want to make a difference in the world. And so I went to my mother's bookshelf, and I pulled out the biography of Gandhiji, you know, and started. And then I thought, and I really want to know what is truth, you know, like, what what is true about this experience? And I pulled out Plato's Republic. Yeah, I was like 11 or 12, but I'm like, you know, I'm already being raised a bit as a Catholic and about Jesus and the Bible and asking questions. I had good friends who are from Italy who were nuns when I was growing up. So I'd always ask them like, you know, what, why don't the nuns say mass and why, why don't they get to be priests? And so I'm asking, I was always asking all these questions. And luckily for me, most of the adults I was exposed to liked that. So they encouraged it. They encouraged that kind of inquiry. And I loved always since I was young, I loved the flying nun. I loved the sound of music. Maria von Trapp was the nun. Later in my teenage life, I met Maria, the the real Maria von Trapp. I actually met her. My uncle worked for her ski lodge up in Vermont. Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah. So nuns had always been like heroines for me because I always thought they just seemed so empowered and so independent in ways that were really magical and really pure. And you know, I thought, wow, but I don't want to be a nun because the tradition I was growing up in, like they didn't really have respect. And I thought, okay, that's good. But, you know, none of the religions are really organized by women. So maybe I'm not going to end up like that. Um, But still, I was meditating. And even at Bates, I would go up to there was a little mountain called Mount David across the street from the campus. And sometimes people found out that I would go up there and they'd say, oh, can we walk up there with you and just sit? And they'd tell me some, tell me their troubles. And I'd listen and you know kind of give you know what do you think and give them some thoughts but yes and I did meet my first Buddhist that Bates he was a monk from Sri Lanka Nalande he had beautiful saffron colored robes this colored robes he was Theravadan monk and I took a religion course I wasn't that interested though at Bates honestly to become a monastic but I was deeply interested in the pursuit of social change Mm -hmm. through nonviolence and truth and my first and in environmental issues my first job after Bates was at the energy office for Cambridge, Massachusetts, working for weatherization assistance and energy um, concerns for the climate. 
But throughout my life, after that, I had worked with H. I wrote the first um, thesis at Bates on HIV/AIDS in the 80s. I was very concerned by compassion and helping people and helping the society, helping the world evolve in very beautiful ways that, you know, I thought we could do better. Like when I looked at world, the world wars, I thought, no, humanity can do better. We, we, need to, we need to come together and really evolve internally. Not, I had even actually at Bates studied in the Galapagos and studied Darwinism. Yes, biological evolution, but there has to be an evolution of the spirit. So these things were compelling me, like in the early AIDS epidemic, it was very difficult work. There was so much fear and negativity, but my own inner resources, something happened very dramatically. My senior year in college, my grandmother's life was taken very suddenly. So I had to dig in and, and say, what do you really believe in? Like you've been looking for truth and you want to make change, but what do you believe in? And so these Buddhist ideas of compassion, loving kindness, Nonviolence, they were always there, but the interest in Buddhism per se wasn't there until, I guess in 1995, I moved, I was living in Berlin, Germany at that point. And I met, at that point, I was doing some photography as, as part of one of my jobs, and I met a jazz singer. She asked me to cover her, her show at one of the jazz clubs in Berlin that was great jazz scene in East Berlin. And um, afterwards, we were you know, probably having a beer or something. And she said, you know, I have a feeling like maybe you're a meditator. And I said, well, yes, actually, I, I didn't tell anyone that. But yes, I was still going off into nature doing that. She said, well, I'm a Buddhist. And I looked at her and her name's Rita. And she's an African-American from Georgia. She's like, yeah, not everyone's a Southern Baptist. You know, she just kind of, we we're just laughing, cracking. She's like, yeah, I'm actually a Buddhist. Would you like to come to my vonung, to my apartment sometime to meditate? And I was like, yeah, that would be great. So I went over one day for that following week. I rode my bike over and went into her apartment and she opened up this beautiful console and there was this whole be beautiful Buddhist shrine. Yeah. And she lit the incense. She taught me Nyomoho Renge Kyo. It's like this Nichiran Japanese mantra. Said that chant a little bit. We sat and did some meditation. Then she told me her story of how she came into Buddhism. And uh, we met and started meditating a little bit. I remember I moved to a new apartment. She said, oh, let's come over and chant and, and bless the apartment. That was my first connection with like really organized Buddhism yeah. was meeting Rita and uh, sitting with her. Then I moved back to Northampton, Massachusetts in 97 and was at another media literacy workshop. And I met another lady and she said, oh, are you, you know, are you Buddhist? And I was like, well, no, but I, you know, I've done Buddhist meditation. She said, oh, would you like to come and sit with our Zen group? We meet at Smith College on such and such a night. And I said, yes, yeah, that sounds great. So I started sitting a little bit with them. And then fast forward a few years, I ended up in Hawaii on the big island. My friends, I didn't know anyone when we moved there, but it ended up friends of friends were there and we got in touch with them. They said, oh, we really get the feeling you'd love this Buddhist temple down in the south of Hawaii in Volcano. Before, you know, why don't you do a trip around the island and you can stay down there? And so when I got down to that temple, that was the first time I really met a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. There was a Lama who was there as a chant master at the very small, simple, beautiful temple there in the jungle. And we started chatting after every morning we'd sit in meditation and he'd chant and then we'd have a tea. And he said, oh, you know, that's very 
nice timing for you because His Holiness the Dalai Lama was just here. And this is in the year 2000. And mm. yes, I had heard of the Tibetans, but there was no real lots of internet going on yet. And um, we started talking and I said to him, well, what do you think of the U.S.? He said, oh, well, we really like it because, you know, it's giving us lots of opportunity. It values freedom of religion. It values culture. And so, uh, you know, I stayed there for some days and then was teaching in Hawaii, still meditating, some great little meditation lava tube caves that I found in Hawaii. And then 9-11 happened and I had no idea. I was teaching sixth grade at the public school and I thought, well, I think we're going to have to just meditate the whole class, like just do some breath meditation and then just talk with the kids about what are their questions. And when I did that with this, I had three classes, over 80 students total, and they loved the simple in and out breath meditation. And I thought, oh, this is what I really want to teach. Hmm. This is wow. it. I wasn't necessarily wanting to be Buddhist at that point. I just really wanted to think about what can we take from the spiritual sacred traditions and apply in a secular way that gives that feeds people without saying to them, hey, you've got to come join. You right. know, what are the practices that are good? What are the practical applications? Right around that same time, I, I met my root teacher who was just in, Bank, in Portland giving a talk at the, mass, in the main college of art. I saw his picture in the newspaper. I was like, oh yeah, a little Dharma talk. Let's go hear that. And he didn't talk anything that night at Maine College of Art about Dharma. He talked about a little school he had just been starting over in India, up in the Himalayas in his hometown. I, everyone at lunch was so quiet around this guy. He was beautiful. And I thought, this guy is so much fun. I could, you know, my, he's a monk. Yeah. And everyone's showing respect. But he was sitting like here at the head of the table, and I'm sitting here. And you can hear the pin drop. And I, we had been already in a morning session with him. And all of a sudden, I was like, you know, I, I said, um, Geshe-la, how do you teach students at your school humility? I said, I just was teaching school in, in Hawaii, and even the sixth graders, you know, they're using this language. And I said, I, I started to teach them meditation after 9-11 so we could at least have a practice to keep things calm and keep the mind under control, and they knew what to do so that their language would be good. And he started giggling. He's like, oh, yes, yeah, well, humility, that's good. But our students don't need that too much. He said, but if they're naughty, sometimes we take them by the ear and pull them out of the classroom and just talk to them and remind them, remind them that they're, you know, they're not being good. I said, yes, well, we can't do that here. We can't touch them. He said, I know it's most unfortunate. <laughs> so then everyone was laughing and then the conversation broke. And I don't know, then I just felt right here in my heart. I just felt like this is a really important person for you. You know, you've got to, you've got to just, you know, not become Buddhist, but you, this is someone you really want to learn from. And then about six months later, I had started the program at Bangor. I got accepted and I was starting and um, my professor called up and he had hurt his leg and we were taking, a, there were two campuses, one in Portland and one in Bangor. And we were driving up and he, my professor was teaching alternately live at one campus and then the next campus week the camp, other campus so he needed a ride all the way up to bangor he couldn't drive so he called me he said are you driving up to bangor and i said well it's my friend Catherine's turn to drive and i'm sure she'll be happy to drive you he said good please come by and pick me up and oh by the way i've got a guest speaker for this class who's coming with us he was teaching world religions and so when we pulled up to his house who was standing there but the same monk who yeah. slid into the back seat next to me and i was like oh Geshe-la, I'm so happy to see you. I said, I bet you don't remember meeting me, but I certainly remember meeting you. 
And then the very next heartbeat question, Kirk, I just looked at him and I said, well, how does one really know if one's met a spiritual master? Mm. I was like, wow. In the wow. back of my mind, I'm like, what are you asking? I mean, is this even okay? And he's giggling. He's like, oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. He said, well, I can't speak for other traditions, but in our tradition, there are four qualities that we have from our text that say the student should find the teacher. A teacher never looks for the student. The student, if they think they found their teacher, should observe him or her for up to 12 years. The teacher should have more qualities, more knowledge, and more experience in the Dharma than the student. And the teacher should never give up on the student. The teacher mm. will always commit to guide them. So at the time, I was about 36. And I remember I looked at him and I looked out the car window and I was like, oh, 12 years. That's a long time. <laughs> oh my God, I thought 48. I'm really, that's really old. And I didn't say a thing, but these thoughts were running through my mind. And I looked back at him and he looked right at me and he said, well, in your case, maybe seven or eight, eight years. <laughs> why, why, did he, why did he cut down the number of years? I don't know, but all the hairs on the back of my neck went up because I did not say a thing to him. And I'm like, oh, he yeah. just plucked that right out of my mind That's stream. Unbelievable. Um, you know, in, in hindsight, why I think he said that was at the time I was, you know, doing my master's degree. I was starting the farm. I was starting the Mamatier organic farm up in Bowdoin. Um, my mother was still very much alive and she was very Catholic. I mean, she was so catholic that even me going to a protestant seminary was was radical for her and she was not really comfortable with that really and i think bad. he could see if i really took on buddhism it would not be comfortable for her mind stream mm -hmm. so you know within two years of that conversation i was going up to his school to volunteer up in the himalayas to teach meditation he said to me why don't you come and teach meditation to our students because i had asked him do you teach meditation to your students he said no they do that, they do know it because they do it at home. Every house has their own little shrine room that they know how to do that. But it's a good idea. You can come and teach them. And I was like, you know, I'm not really even a Buddhist, but okay, I'll come and teach them. So I wrote a grant and I got a grant to come and do an independent research study in India. That was my first trip to India in 2005. Still no aspiration to be a monastic. Mm. But slowly, 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 I mean, right away in 2005, I connected with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I was up in Ken Rinpoche, up in Geshe's school and, and totally committing to his project. Um, totally fell in love with the village and the people there. They were the, the most pleasant, genuinely warm-hearted, happy people I had ever met. You know, I'd already done a lot of traveling around the planet. And I thought, wow, you know, there must be either something in the Himalayan water or something in the Himalayan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to imbibe them and see what I find out. Yeah. So slowly, slowly, I would go back and forth to Maine in the summers. And then my mother got sick, so I was around. And then maybe around 2000, my mother passed away in 2007. So I came back to India in 2009, maybe by 2012. So at that point, it had been, you know, almost 10 years since I met Ken Rinpoche. I started to really think about, yes, I was teaching mindfulness and meditation and people were benefiting, but my study of Buddhism had got started to go deeper and deeper. And I had started the project in Maine. The Maine Mindfulness Project was just secular, secular mindfulness, no Buddhism, but I was still studying Buddhism. And then I started to feel more compelled, like, wow, there's, you have a good chance in this life to do something even more contributing than just mindfulness. Like, if you took Buddhism all the way, 
to full enlightenment, if this would be your one shot in this one lifetime, you'll never have better chance. You have connection with His Holiness Dalai Lama. You have a root Lama who's totally connected with him. You've made a connection with the Tibetan other masters and Himalayan peoples who are carrying this tradition. Why not go for it? Mm. And so, um, yeah, it was a hard decision. I mean, I gave up my farm and gave up all the trappings of, you know, the sports car and the mountain bike and the road bike and the downhill skis and the cross country skis and basketball. And the one thing you gave up that I'm not sure I could ever, of course, Ani, is my hair. Now, oh, the hair. I mean, for me, oh, I'm but you, Samson. You have, my you hair. Have such a, you have such a, I mean, you do have great hair. You've got like the Patrick Dempsey hair. I've met Patrick Dempsey too. And, you know, there's, there's some kind of affiliation there. But I can tell you this. You both have great smiles and you look fine bald. Okay. Well, okay. No problem. I, I'm sure dudes have huge hair envy, but because you, you would not be one to be losing it naturally. But uh, yeah, look at your smile. You'd look great, bald. So you never have to worry about that. I appreciate that. You're so kind. You look better than me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think the Himalayan nuns look far more beautiful than I do, bald. But you got to just work with what you've got. So I go with the smile. I think, you know, if I distract them with a genuine heart smile and sparkly eyes, and they'll forget that they're looking at, you know, half the people here think I'm a man anyway, because I'm so tall. I get oh to, God. I get to the airport and you have to go through security checks, you know, frisking. There's the male side and the female and I line up and all the Indian ladies have this like gorgeous black long hair. And everyone's like, sir, excuse me, sir. I know. Lady looks like a dude. Oh my not dude looks like a lady. Lady looks like a dude. <laughs> oh my goodness. No problem. What, no so, problem. Uh, I mean, it sounds like you've sort of found this, I mean, obviously found the, this peace and uh, happiness and fulfillment. What's the, what's the most challenge? As you hear my dog drinking his water, what's the most, what's the most challenging part for you of being a nun? Well, initially it was um, just getting dressed. I mean, the robes, I had no idea, you know, how to put them on. And I remember right before my 50th birthday thinking, what the heck have you done? You can't even get yourself dressed in the morning. So, you know, your ego flips out when you lose wow. even that base capacity. So luckily I had good support through my Spanish nun sister. She's like, ay, hermana, no hay de que. No, no es un problema. You know, like, don't worry about it. So slowly, slowly, I got the hang of that. Of course, yeah, losing the hair, you have a kind of, I remember I met one lady on the bus in, in Dharamsala before I took vows and she said, oh, I heard you're taking vows and I'm just going to be honest, it's too bad because you have such beautiful hair. You know, people liked them. Also, I had, you know, like, yeah, I'm Italian also. We have the Italian gene for hair, Kirk. You know, I had a great, hair. Like, I remember. Yeah. So I said, you know, well, yes, but... I think part of it for me was really letting go of attachments, you know, to my, my feelings of home, like my farm in Maine, my cat, that lifestyle of uh, rhythms, you know, that you've, you've got your place and it's not always easy, but you've got community. I had really great community in Maine to give all that up, um, give the, title of my farm over for one dollar i didn't want to try to sell it or make people buy me out because it was my decision to mm -hmm. to follow the path so to give up any kind of financial security um but more it was like having to move away from my family my i mean my my sister and my niece are i'm still really close to and they're in new hampshire and now my niece is down in connecticut but my main community you know 
like really taking a big leap when you're 49. And um, I remember I met one lady, a pretty famous um, psychologist at a interfaith conference, the the Parliament of World Religions. And she said to me, oh, are you having a midlife crisis? And I said, (laughs) no, not at all. I said, that's I said, when you feel a calling like this, it's so much more profound than any kind mm-hmm. of crisis. I said, I'm, I remember telling Lori, who's my partner at the time, like, I'm not running away from anything, but I'm really being called towards something. If, if you have a calling in life, if you, whether it's a career or you fall in love with someone and you want to start a family or you want to start a business, those are kinds of vocations. Those are vocation is, you know, the, the root of the word means to be called to vocation. But when you have a spiritual calling, when you have a higher calling, it, it's really a sense of a huge responsibility because it's not like you're going to come and take robes and sacred vows. It would be like thinking, oh, I'm going to get married in Vegas, you know, and then you can just get divorced easily the next day and say, oh, that wasn't the right thing to do. It's not like that at all. I mean, here are the Tibetan people who were literally refugees and driven out of their country who lost millions of their fellow country people through an occupation and lost thousands of temples and sacred texts. Their whole tradition, culturally, spiritually, of Tibetan Buddhism was under attack of being destroyed. And so it was like a very huge decision to, to think, are you serious about this? Are you really going to, is this going to hold for you? Can you keep those vows? And so um, thinking of it that way, I thought then these other things are really not much to give up because no one's forcing me out of my country. No one's compelling me to join this. Realistically, my life is improving because of this and it could be something that if I'm carrying it, I could help others out of their suffering. And after all, isn't that what you feel like you were born to do? And do you ever miss like the, like the material comforts that we all oh, yeah, yeah. take for granted? Yeah, every day? yeah I mean, my first, my first winters in India, um, I, I'm at a different nunnery now, but the nunnery I was at then, those rooms were much colder and no one to my knowledge was using any heater there not even the the head of the nunnery who started it and she was in her 50s her or her early 60s actually and i thought well i'm not going to get a space heater cuz she's in her early 60s she's not using one and i was freezing oh that God. first winter and uh at least we did have like a communal kind of wood stove in our dining hall that everyone would go and like hug on this earth and wood this earth and wood stove that these germans built um that was pretty tough. And then not showering. So there was hot water, but it was so cold that, you know, you wouldn't want to shower. So, and this was before, this was even, I used to do the saunaing and the rolling in the snow, but yeah. I, I, it was, the air was so cold. You didn't want to plunge into and take the cold or even a warm shower and then get cold again because I would, you would get sick, you know, so you would just have to get used to not showering for some weeks at a time, which, you know, for an American's a little tough because we're a kind of a shower culture. Shower for, culture. European, for Europeans, they're not, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Americans shower every day, at least once and sometimes twice or three times. Yeah. yeah. But Europeans and Indians, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. So that was a little bit of a new, uh, and then not, you know, things like not being in control of like cooking your food and just accepting eating what you're given eating only two times a day. We only eat, you know, breakfast and lunch. We don't eat dinner. That was a little hard, especially when it was cold during the winter. I lost a lot of weight and I saw my teacher. He's like, you know, you don't have to do that. Like, don't be extreme. The Buddha said, you have to find the middle way. But I was like 
you know, I met him and I had dropped, I don't know how many pounds, 10 pounds. And I don't really have those 10 pounds to lose. So my health wasn't, my health took a hit at the beginning. That was a bit tough. And then the language, of course, because I was learning Tibetan to say the prayers. Mm -hmm. And when you really hear the nuns praying, it's like speed praying and your tongue, you feel like you've got, you know, four tongues in there trying to pronounce things. And I speak German and I speak Spanish, but the the challenge with Tibetan is the whole alphabet is different. It's a beautiful language and it's written like calligraphy. If you've ever seen any Tibetan, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I have seen um, it. Yeah. And so Tris trying to learn that starting at the age of 50 was a little tough. Um, but, you know, in the end, it, nothing was enough to, to deter me. There's a beautiful line in one of our prayers that says a total absence, which means you have to be totally self selfless. You give up, give up any kind of selfish motivation, planning, total absence, lack of a sign. So you're not looking for signs that you've attained anything, lack of a hope or a wish. So you're not projecting anything out and lack of an action to affect things ahead, which means you're just living right now. This is all you have. It's all we know that we have. And you're not worried about what's happening in an hour, in a day, in a month, because as my teacher repeated over and over again, during all those years in Maine, when he'd come, life is uncertainty, death is certainty. We do not know how long we have to live a life, but we do know death is coming. We don't know when. So live, live your life now. Well, that was a call to seize the day from Anila, if I ever heard one. Um, also, if you're interested in being a part of uh, Ani's Buddhist Center here in Maine, give a shout, drop a comment, uh, shoot me a note on Instagram or Facebook, and I can get you connected. Um, also, uh, on a broader note about the about the show and the podcast. If you uh, if you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Leave a leave a review. Um, share on your social networks, and I'd be much obliged. But now it is time for the creature feature of this episode. Now, of course, we're in the Himalayas with Ani Law, so naturally we're going to talk about yes, you've guessed it, the domestic yak. Okay, so. The yak and the, I wonder if, if the plural of yak is yaks or yak. I don't know. Is it the, the yak and humans? Humans and the yak have had a symbiotic relationship for thousands of years. Uh, people in Tibet and other uh, cultures in Mongolia, Siberia, etc., uh, India have, uh, have partnered with the yak. They've partnered with the yak, indeed for their milk, for their fiber, for their meat, uh, to help them with daily work and tasks. And they also use their droppings as a primary source of fuel. Contrary to popular belief, I've read, the yak and its manure are odorless. So this is something that i've always wondered about burning yak manure and uh what is the actual experience like well apparently it's just like burning wood chips so there you have that now if you're thinking about the yak in a more uh, spiritual nature they're known for their determination dependability 
and endurance. They can endure and persevere through the harshest of environments, which is kind of interesting when, you know, I was talking about just all of us enduring these challenging days of COVID and uh, persisting mentally and physically. We were just thinking of the yak. I'm thinking of the yak, you know, living in that present, the gift of the present. So I guess I'll think of the yak whenever I feel like life is getting to be a little too harsh. And as you listen to this wind blowing, maybe you can visualize the yak high up on the Mongolian steppe or in the Himalayas, just looking for miles and miles at the expanse and taking in all that is in the vastness of its surroundings. Pretty cool. Love it. Seize the day, everyone. We'll catch you next time on Delarius.